out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Sounds drastic, but we're going to be okay. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Another one of my specials, and this is um, part of the interview series that I've been doing over the last three years. This is with Donald Johnson, he of a certain ratio fame. This interview I did a few months ago, and um, enjoy. I'm just going to play it. No messing, no editing, no crafty stuff. And this is um, after about five minutes of general chat about life, love, poetry. Um, this is when I started um, talking about the band um, and asking about uh, the early years and how it all came into being. And this was Donald's um, reply. Donald, it's over to you now. Well, prior to me, you had, um, I think it was Pete, Pete and Simon. They found Jez. Then those three found Martin. And then they found me. Yeah? And that's kind of how that all came. I'm trying to shorten it, condense it a little bit for you. Not <laughs> through it too, too long. That's how it all came together. Before me, those guys were, were playing and um, did recorded All Night Party. Um, and the thing that got me interested in them is that I loved how they were using, and I don't think they even knew that they were doing this, I loved how they were using <clears throat> echoes and effects and everything because they were actually doing that in what I would consider to be the drum space. But because it was their norm of not having a drummer, they didn't know that they were doing that. And that intrigued me. So I wanted to be, when I had the chance of being a part of it all, I wanted to be able to move into that space and then just get them to keep that element, which I call the cinematic element, you know, the, uh, the eclectic part, and, and, and then move that around, really, and then just let the drums do what the drum has to do, you know, in terms of kicking a rhythm and moving things through, and then they could do all the other stuff. Yeah. So, so, when, so when you were sort of in your teen years, what was your sort of musical kind of journey there? I mean, just wondered what you were, had been listening to and what you had been influenced by. Oh, me? Oh, it's, there's a lot of things. I was still a Boland, Roxy, Bowie fan. You know, I'd be listening to um, James Brown. I'd be listening to Earth, Wind & Fire. I'd listen to Tower of Power, Stanley Clark, George Duke. And then I'd still be listening to things like Holt's Planet Suite, you know, or Elgar or, you know, those kind of things. I actually really like things that don't have drums in them. <laughs> those are my favourite bits of music, no drums. Yes. So it's quite a sophisticated musical palette there, really. Yeah, it's and um, that's the kind of thing I really like about being in this band because they've they've they're all very talented individuals who um, have these traits of where they play a couple of instruments each or two or three instruments each. But uh, the one thing where we, we we all go into the same space is that we we love um, sounds and how sounds are created and what you can do with sounds and how it's. Um, how you can manipulate sounds and all that kind of thing. As well as the fact that we can write a song and sound like a band, we have to make the band sound different. Do you, understand? you know what I mean? And we're not, that's almost not on purpose, but that's where all these different um, influences come in and start colliding together. You know, if you, um, you, you, you could, uh, most of the things that you're listening to, that, if you're listening to say, say, listen to a tune like Blight, you know, Blight has got this very cinematic thing about it, very weird, very, very sort of um, dark, you know, but like parts of that drumming, just from the, the drumming perspective, um, you know, there's a lot of things that when I was listening to a George Duke album that I've replicated within that, you know, and it's to try and, to try and mix those two elements together that weren't supposed to be there. That's the kind of thing that I think we, we're into. Mixing elements that are not supposed to be there. 
Yes, well, this yes, this is obviously a, a good thing, and when it works, it really works. Because because it was kind of when you joined the band was when you when you the band had your first John Peel session, which was obviously quite a big thing for bands at that time. Because I know quite a few people I spoke to have often said, "Well, that was the dream, just to do a John Peel session, and then we would be happy." But often that is the thing that then gives them that other bounce to go a bit further. So that must have been a, an exciting experience. Yeah, oh, that was, oh, you've just nailed it. You've said all of it there. That was, that was our whole thing, you know, to do a, a John Peel session and to, to pull that kind of thing together. It was like, it was the beginning of kind of cool recognition. You know, if John recognised you as, as an entity and you could be on his show, that means you were, you were doing something, something right somewhere. Yes, it is quite interesting because I hadn't really appreciated, and we often take these things for granted, don't we? Or yes, we just take them, you know, until something happens and then it's taken away. But he he was this kind of great gatekeeper that I hadn't appreciated quite so much until he went, and then I thought, oh my god, we've really missed John Peel. Totally, and I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example of of something with John Peel. Um, how soon is now? I remember hearing that <clears throat> Friday night, I was driving in the car, and that came on and from the Smiths, and it just sounded like nothing else. John just played this wonderful track. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've done this several times. You know when you're driving home, and you're driving home, but the tune's so good, you don't want to turn it off, so you go past home, and you go to, <laughs> to somewhere else, and then you might come back to it. I kind of did that. And then when I got home, I lived in, in the flats, it was three floors up, I knocked, no, sorry, I didn't knock on the door. I opened the door, went through, and my girlfriend, who's my wife now, we didn't even say hello or anything because she was listening to John Peel as well in the kitchen. And we both said in unison, did you just hear that track on the radio? You know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. And then you start, you just start talking about that. This is no hello, no how's your day been, no anything. Just, did you just hear that track? You know, and it was a Smith's track played by John Peel. On a Friday night. Yes. Actually, it did once happen. I was driving my 850 Mini and um, and he was... And I, I never listened to John Peel live. I used to just always record it on a cassette and then listen oh. to it quite a few times. I think this is true. That I, I can't remember if it was live. I think it was probably a cassette because I was a bit obsessed with my TDK. And it was the, the kind of a remix of New Order's... I think it was True Faith. It went on for about nine minutes. And I, I just didn't want... You know, I was like driving slower and slower thinking, my God, this is just going... This is just the best thing I've ever heard, you know. So it was, it was a slightly, you know, similar experience where you just thought, I'm not, I can't stop the car now. I'm just going to keep driving, you know, and probably drop it down to second gear just to keep it going because it was so magical. It was a moment, you know. So yes, okay, I've done that many times, and I've always let the track take preference. So even if I end up, you know, three or four miles from home, I'd rather drive back having heard that because I won't sit outside and and listen to it. It's when you're in the moment and you're driving it and, you, and you're taking it all in, you just stay with that same moment. You know what I mean? You don't stop and, and, and hear it. I can do that at home. I'm no, just pick it up. But yeah, we've yes, been there. It was good. So then when, when you joined the band and you got your sort of that, that first album together, what was the sort of recording process of that? And, and what was the dynamics like amongst, amongst the, uh, the band? Um, well, what was really good, we've always been into, um, you know, the writing process. I think there was, there was some, obviously, prior to me, there was some things already ready. Um, and I was just, I was kind of adding to them. But then when we started writing together and, and um, pulling some stuff together, it was, uh, it was great because it was what you just talked about then. We, we jammed something together on our cassettes, all listened to the little bits in the cassettes, play those back to each other, um, have a reference point for them, um, ex extend the song or make the song better. And that was a great thing about cassettes then because it was, it was just so cheap technology that you could just do anything and then you'd, you'd, you'd be able to hold it and play it in the car and do all that kind of thing. And that was kind of it, really. We were just jamming, listening to cassettes, getting in the studio, playing. Then there'd be certain elements that we'd just leave to just doing in the studio. You know what I mean? There's, there's some things that we um, we just leave to um, being able to use that facility and use use that better. 
Yes. And also, I mean, with one of, you know, your, when you recorded Two Each, you did this in New Jersey with the famous Martin Hannett. Now, most, quite a few people I spoke to, especially from the northeast, west, um, have mentioned Cargo Studios in Rochdale as being this kind yeah. of magical place. But did you ever record anything there? I'm trying to remember, actually. Um, I'm sure we've got some tapes with some things. I couldn't tell you the actual track, but I've, I've seen... Some of our two-inch masters with a um, with the cargo logo on it, right? Because it was yeah. just one of those ones. Because I was talking to Mark Burgess from the Chameleons and also um, Vin from Section Twenty Five, and it was like, yeah, we did this amazing recording in in a cargo studios in Rochdale, and and I was always curious why this is you know such an amazing space. And if you have Martin Hannett as well, you know, you double double excitement. You know, you've got this most amazing sound. And I knew I know you recorded to each in New Jersey. So how come that happened over there and not not sort of on your doorstep? Uh, it was Sonny Wilson's idea, really, to be able to. Um... Well, one, we wanted to be out, out of that environment. We wanted to be around the New York thing, the dance vibe thing, you know, um, the club thing. We wanted to be out and, and, and stuck in that influence through your pores, you know, that kind of thing, through your experience of being there. And Tony was well into that situation as well. He thought that was a great idea. And it was just, it was kind of nice to be away as well, be... be not um, not have the regular distractions that are around you to distract you, just to be somewhere else so you, you, you're kind of focused, you know. So that, that was good for us, really. Yeah, absolutely. And then, because during that period, obviously there was like the 80s, which was quite a strange and interesting time. You know, it was very fractured between, you know, those in the sort of, I suppose, the right, and then there's the kind of indie scene and the kind of the the whole sort of Socialist Workers' Party and, and you know, Red Wedge and stuff like that. And, and a lot of bands survived that period through kind of unemployment and being on the Job Seekers Allowance or Enterprise Allowance. So did you also, were you also feeling that kind of tribal quality that was happening during those period, during those years? No, well, we, we were kind of very aware of, you know, what was going in and around you. And I think our thing really was really putting them into little songs, you know, p- pulling that kind of thing together. I don't think, we, none of us went on marches or, you know, did any of that kind of stuff, but we kind of understood what was going on with like Rock Against Racism and that kind of thing, you know, we, um, everybody supported that. But again, it, you, when you were involved with it, you had to be invited to be a part of it. Yes, this is true. Because cause the other thing that I noticed was that with a lot of the bands I've interviewed, you know, there was this five-year narrative of two years getting together, making a sound, John Peel would play it, then there was a John Peel session, the, the first album, you know, which was great, and then the tricky second album. If anybody ever toured America, that seemed to finish them off. But you managed to keep it going for a lot longer than that kind of famous five years, which seems to be a kind of a period of time that sort of finishes most bands off. Well, I think because we're we're different from most bands in the sense that we, you know, you've got this group of individuals that really want to experiment with sound, want to want to push the borders further. You know, listen, like most bands, we argue, we fall out, we do all those kind of things. But the one thing that happens in this band, which is completely unique, regardless of when we've fallen out or whatever, the music comes first. And even if someone's in a bad mood or something about something, they won't be on a downer just because they're in a bad mood because and not let a great piece of music come through. They don't like standing ground. No, I really wanted that to be this. They'll listen to it and go, no, that's better than the idea I already had. So that's quite unique in this group. But <laughs> listen, we have our problems like everybody else, but we've worked ways round of being able to... Uh, to kind of get round those. So, you know, when you, the other thing is, is you've got this amazing amount of music that's been written all the time because all the guys write most of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Then we together. So there's some individual writing and then writing together. Yeah. And then sort of mid 80s come and you, you lose one of your original members, Andy Connell, to swing out sister because at that time there were people like Working Week and obviously yeah. Sade and then, you know, that kind of soul stuff with, you know, Simply Red. Did that feel like quite a loss or did it feel like actually this is quite a nice kind of time to have a have a change of dynamic? 
It was a loss, and it was good to have a change of dynamic. But the, the, the other thing, when Andy, Andy was still around, Andy was still available, yeah? Um, he, just, he just moved his focus more in the direction of swing out than, than us. But we, we've never kind of, you know, anyone that's left, we've never thought of them as gone forever. <laughs> They've just gone for a short period of time. You know, we'll, we've always bounced back and do something together eventually at some point. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that pushed Andy off in another direction, and then that maybe that gave us a little bit of a kick as well. But you know, we um, you just get through it because that kind of thing happens, doesn't it? It does. You, you you know, you have to just deal with it, I guess. But but actually, one of the the films that I, I, there were several films that we loved in the eighties, Betty Blue Diva, and. Um, Yes, meantime, you know those, those kind of films, but also Letter to Brezhnev, and you fe- you you had a track that was featured on that particular film, Wild Party, as well, didn't you? Yes, we did. Which we, we loved at the time, actually, and it was one of those films. And I, I must admit, you know, I watched it and thought, wow, this is great, you know, because we were into all those kind of indie arty films. But I'd forgot about it until I sort of suddenly saw the mention of the soundtrack, and you know, you featured on it. So that must have been quite a nice sort of moment. Because was that one of the first times you were on a soundtrack? Yes, it was. And I think again, what sold it to us is I think when we saw it, we saw uh, Margie Clark's. Um, performance that was just yeah we've got we've got to be a part of this you know um yeah that was a very big buzz for us that was the first time that um we were on something like that i mean obviously john peel's national or whatever but as a record as an event as a as a thing that was um probably the first time we were on something that was was that big that's outside of us but still contained something that we've done Yes, and it was just a magic film, actually. But the, what, the other thing that, that sort of a lot of bands kind of hit them, there's the business and admin, which is tricky, and there's also the mu- the change in musical landscape, because I know this is a bit simplistic, but there was that kind of, you know, obviously you had the mainstream and the charts, then you had that sort of the 80s and the indie scene, and then as that progressed, you know, the dance world started to appear, and unless you moved over like people like the Stone Roses and Soup Dragons and Primal Scream... A lot of those kind of more guitar-based, jingly-jangly bands just said, well, actually, we just had enough. And and then they that scene then gets wiped out with the kind of grunge scene, and then that scene gets knocked out with another scene. I mean, how did you... Because you did sort of... You, you sort of managed to straddle all these different periods, so that's quite an impressive feat in itself. We managed to do that because we never... We were never uh, focused in any one direction. We played dance music, we play. You know, it's got a funky edge to it, but it's also got a Latin tinge to it. It can have a soul tinge to it. It can have a, you know, a a Bowie-esque, Roxy type vibe to it. It can have a, you know, the, the things that we're influenced by, bands like Wire and Peru Boo. You know, it'll have it can have those kind of things. But then we might do that, and then we'll listen to something like Scientist and listen to that major production of all those dub echoes and all those kind of things and go, yeah, that's what that should be. You know what I mean? So that, that's another reason why how you get things like Flight just out of there. That might, A lot of people call that a very classic and you know eclectic track, but it's, it's bred out of all these different fields. Yes, God, I'd no. forgot, because John Peel was very good at introducing all those dub albums, like Augustus Pablo and King Tubby, and they were just that, amazing. Yeah, that, a lot of people don't know, but that's ratio was deep, deep, deep into all that kind of production and, and that whole, you know, that whole analogue thing with all those kind of really beautiful triplet echoes and, and stuff that's going on. You know, that inspired Nice Fitzwater, the bass drum. You know, and made made us echo a bass drum. No one echoes a bass drum ever, and we echo a bass drum. Then everybody's echoing a bass drum. Yeah. You know, and then the 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 most famous bass drum riff of all time is New Order's um, Blue Monday. You know, it's not bass drum, but it's it's that that feel of of that demi semic wave. You know. Yes, and um, yeah, I can. I just remember that sort of sound. I, I think it was the Colour Box who covered a version of "Baby, I Love You So." I think, God, I can't remember actually. But anyway, they they did a cover of a reggae classic, and they gave it a bit more, I suppose, of a modern 
touch to it technology wise and it did sound quite awesome but how did it feel because obviously you were part of that factory record period during most of the sort of 80s and then then changed to A&M did that feel quite um tricky to, to move off factory records I just wondered if that sort of had been something that you felt quite kind of connected to and felt kind of um somehow part of the family yeah we did move off um we did move it was completely different and it was um tricky is not the word just different because it was it's more business orientated where factory was very business orientated they did have their business together but it it was kind of different and factory liked music for different reasons uh a and m liked music for different reasons and we learned some of the reasons they liked music wasn't the same reason we liked music you know um factory was more about it being organic and under and understood who tried to understand who the performers were and trying to get them to to make something that represented them with the a and m thing even though we wrote two great albums you know i think two of two of our they stand up with any of the other albums that we've done you know uh, good together and uh, acr mcr um it's still with them about business and not about the artist and that was quite difficult to to live with at times even though we had people there that understood us so that was a massive dichotomy for us in terms of um, you know just your everyday existence being more business orientated about things when you're not used to that you used to being creative and not very business yes and then but then you came off that and was on Rob's Records, which was owned by obviously New Order's manager, you know, Rob yeah. Gretton. So did that feel like a lot? Did you all go, phew, that was a bit of a relief to get off that trip and on to something else? Um, it was nice to be back in a place where somebody wanted you. Rob Gretton is someone that I've known. I knew Rob way before, um, you know, Factory had happened or anything. I was a friend of Rob's in the very early 70s because I used to hang out with Rob's sister. And um, I knew Rob long before he'd managed Joy Division Warsaw, way before all that kind of thing. Anyway, when it turns around that he's really into ratio, he's always been into ratio, he's always kind of, he was another one of those um, great people that behind the scenes were still helping us and guiding us, you know, all the time. Um, So it was nice to just, he was the natural place to kind of go after everything else. Like, Rob, we want to do this. What do you think? Yeah, of course. Come on then. You know, literally like that. No, no signing anything. No, what do you want? No, it was none of that. It was like, Rob, we want to put out this record. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, we'll do it. Go on, go and record it. Yes. And as, and as the nineties finished and we, you know, crept into the next decade, did things become a bit more sparse? I mean, I just wonder what the dynamic of the band were like after that um yeah kind of because now you've got people having children and you know real life sort of slapping you in the face <laughs> do you know what i mean after the, at the late 80s early 90s that kind of thing so yeah so it got um we probably um slapped off a lot more then and, and more focused on our, our our families the music but that never stops us all from continuing to write music Yes. And did it feel, did you ever have moments where you just thought, God, I've been in this band and we haven't really engaged? Yeah, I just wondered if there were periods where you just, it was just kind of there on the shelf and occasionally you thought, oh God, yes, we must do something about that one day. Uh, what you mean a track or, or well just that well just because obviously you know you're you know especially in the early years you know you know as with a lot of people it's 24 7 you're in the band nothing else mm-hmm. and then other things happen and then it's you know time drifts and sometimes you know as i find with certain bands mostly it's like well you know when one person is really the band you know sometimes they've just had to get on with life earn some money somewhere else and then kind of pick it up later when they when there's kind of a different opportunity or some circumstance have changed mm-hmm. yeah well we're, we're kind of a, a you know we're still a gang at the end of the day you know and it's it's kind of still got the the gang and um, you know the, the world against us mentality so every time we've come together it's it's been um you know fully focused from from everyone as far as that's concerned we've never really sort of uh we don't we're unconventional like that, and it sounds really silly, 
even saying it to you, but we, we don't kind of think on those levels. We just think about what we're doing, how we're doing it, how do we want to do it, do we want to do it, you know, and where, where and when should we do it. Sure. I mean, Vin from Section 25, it was a little bit similar with, you know, just like he, you know, he said to me, he just had to have a break because things were getting too much and he just needed to get some money because he had a family and then kind of people die, you know, in the band. Yeah. And then, then you know, you come back and you pick it up again. And then with age, you start thinking, actually, this is kind of what I really want to do now, but it's going to be slightly different, but it's still me and the band. And I'm, I am that band with a few other people around me. So, you know, it, it isn't like being 18 or 23 again, where you just kind of, live and breathe it all the time because stuff happens and you know like yeah i mean that that is the diff that's the difference with being older but by being older you're also a lot more sensible you know whereas um when we were 18 and say we would um we'd pull all nights to record and you know do all that kind of thing no way do we do that now <laughs> when we record it's kind of we're all done by i don't know seven o'clock eight o'clock you know that kind of thing you know, it'd be very rare that you get in a certain ratio uh, situation overnight now. You know what I mean? Whereas in our when we were in our teens and everything, it was always overnight, you know, because that was the best kind of creative time for us when there was no other distractions. You were just able to do things. But now, because you, you know, you're, you're a lot older, you're a lot wiser, you're a lot, you've learned your craft or you've developed part of your craft so much that you can, um, you know, insert it at, at different parts of the day and uh, you know there can be times when there's only two of us in the studio there's, there's three of us in the studio there's only one of us in the studio it, it, and it's still it's still going on do you know what I mean and no one's going oh I better protect my bit and get there and do whatever we don't think like that yes I think that's true and the other thing you know because I did I know you work with um Barry Adamson and who, yeah. who um yes I interviewed and and he's just kind of got a compilation of all the work that he's well not all of it but you know a selection of kind of stuff he's done over the last 40 years and you've done a compilation as well and a tour how did that feel bringing you know like a box set together and then sort of looking at what you've achieved over those decades well a lot of the box set is down to um Mute UK because they kind of pushed us to <coughs> excuse me they kind of pushed us to look at the archive, to go back and look at the archive. Because again, typical ratio, you just do it, leave it and move on because you, you keep moving forward. You know, you're not looking back. Um, and it was really Paul, Paul A. Taylor at, at Mute. Um, they know there must be, there must be stuff. There must be archive stuff. There's got to be this. There's got to be that. And then we'd find some tapes. Yeah. And then there must be other tapes. And sure. There's more of this. And then we find more dats. And then, then we find this whole array of things and we'd go, We've not listened to these for I don't know how many years. We need to listen to them, and as we're listening to them, that's when it starts to um, it starts to grow. You know, you start to find things. You know, you find um, the Grace Jones track that was, <laughs> you know, that we were the Talking Heads Grace Jones things. How's the emotion that we we did? Um, you know, thirty nine years ago or whatever it was. Um, you know, you find that and you go, oh, well done. That doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> I mean, and then it's different things like that, pulling it together. It's great now we've got the full body of work, but it takes a long time to to go through all the bits, you know. Um, and I think one of the main things that we were looking at with putting this one together is to, is to find things that hadn't been out before. That was also a challenge to us, not just regurgitate what was already there, find something that wasn't there, you know. So you'll, you, you'll get... Um, you know, there's going to be demos of, of certain things, you know, that um, we'd forgotten that we'd done, you know, like uh, a Force album, you know, a demo of the Force album. We've, we forgot that we, we did that. <laughs> yeah. that. You can't believe it, can you? In your own work, you no, it's really, and did you feel quite stunned when you listened to it? Absolutely so. Yeah, because remember, what was, so if we'd have demoed that, that came out in eight. 84 somewhere like 85 so then roll back a year previous to that so you can say that we haven't we haven't heard those demos since at least 83 yes god that is strange isn't it that is such a strange thought that you've had it there but again that's something that i've noticed a lot of people have really enjoyed 
just kind of getting in their attic or in the cupboard and thinking, right, I really want to archive this stuff now. <laughs> because it kind of feels like if I don't do it, no one else is going to be interested. But then knowing that once it is, it's like, phew, I've preserved it. And it's kind of a it's a kind of a document and, and just a way of thinking, yes, I'm I'm sorting my stuff out. And also the other thing is that I've noticed that there's been three or four films that have been um uh, made and released recently you know there's one on the go between the chills and the wedding present and various people have been writing books so do you also have those kind of feelings of like actually it would be really nice to see if we've got any of that material or perhaps I could write my book about my experience because obviously there is there are people and I am a fan who love all that kind of stuff oh absolutely uh, me personally I I'd love what I'd like Ratio to do is, again, the thing that nobody else does, which is all of us write a book together, not write one individually. Yeah? Yeah. Whether it happen or not, I don't know, but that would be, um, that'd be wonderful. I think this, this, this box is pretty much what you're saying there, um, you know, with having chats with, uh, again, Paul, Paul Taylor from, uh, from Mute about being able to have something that's kind of substantially about now. I mean, we look, we look back on it in the same reverence that you're going to look at it and go, did, did we do that? Did, did, did that happen then? You know, that kind of thing. And it, it, it isn't me being tweet. It's just the fact that you've not heard all of that stuff for ages. You know, we've moved on. We've done X albums since then. And then to come back to, um, you know, uh, it, it's great when you hear a track and then it takes you right back to the moment when you when you were recording it and why you were recording it and what you were trying to do. I know it maybe didn't make an album, didn't make an EP or didn't make whatever, but the fact that it's around now is great because it, 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 it brings that moment clearer to you again, you know, because it, it's refreshed. And does it help with the kind of current, you know, musical kind of journey as well? Because obviously you're still making and releasing new stuff. And I just wondered if that kind of feeds into the things like you've just released Houses in Motion. Yeah, absolutely so. It, um, again, it makes us, that's another good thing about this band. It's, it's just, you know, the amount of people that have heard Houses in Motion and are convinced that it, it's about now. And we keep saying, no, it was recorded X time ago. It's, you know, that was, it was, 30 odd years ago that it was recorded, people don't believe us, you know, but it sounds so good and it sounds so now, it sounds so still so fresh and everything. One of, one of the things that I think that's made um, the things on this box set sound pretty good was the quality criteria that ACR have is when we record something, we record it well. And even though we don't put a production technique on it, uh, later on, you know, we record it and then leave it. So I, we don't finish it in terms of its production technique. It's to sound like this. I think that's the great thing about being able to to call back things from from ACR is that um, we're able to to almost put stuff in stasis and then be able to bring it back, you know, regenerate it, and it still sounds. It still has the same um, capacity to um, to be fresh because we haven't put, you know, the latest keyboard that's on it or the latest X production technique that's on it. Or you, you, Am I making sense to you? Does yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. obviously, you know, because last year you did a, a track, Dirty Boy, with Barry Adamson. Yeah. Did that feel, you know, when you sort of work together with people, you know, from different, different sort of bands or whatever scenes, do, do you often have little moments where you just kind of have a chat over a cup of tea or coffee and think, wow, what a journey? Um... We maybe do that with us. A lot of the times we don't see them. Because <laughs> part of our, our remix, our, our, the style of our remix thing is that we actually play on that on the track. Yeah, we don't just, we're not just using our studio heads to it. We actually play on the track. So um, it might be, I don't know, um, let's just say it's the do the do riff or whatever. We might, we might um, uh, change the do to do riff into something else, but we're playing it and putting it into the Barry track. So you're still recognizing it as something from a certain ratio. You know what I mean? And that was, that was kind of great because it, again, it was a very old friend of ours who's, you know, we've been mates for forever. And Barry just kind of, uh, hey guys, you want to, do you want to do a remix? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we like the idea. What, what do you want to do? You know, oh, I've got this track called, you know, 
I got close and we did, I got close with him. And then, you know, we, we sent him down. After we did that, he said, oh, great, I'd love to get on one of your tracks. And then we had Dirty Boy. And that's when we said, Barry, do you want to do some lyrics on this? <laughs> it literally is that. People think it's, um, you know, the big train down to London, a big board meeting with six or eight guys around. And, and we, right, these are the lyrics and we need them to be, you know, it's nothing like that. It's literally, you know, an email. What are you doing on Saturday? Fantastic. Literally like that. God, that is so nice, isn't it? And what would you, you know, kind yeah. of say to your kind of, I know it's a bit sort of a difficult one, but, you know, a younger self that's starting out, you know, those kind of things that you thought, God, that the wisdom that I've picked up sort of since those those very early days and decades ago, I just wondered what sort of things you thought, oh, God, that would have been a really good thing to have known then. Um... Any band starting now, I'd definitely tell them, look at your publishing. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing you learn about, um, which is the first thing we kind of learned about. Um, and look at your, your owning your own um, self, which is something we've kind of done with most of the things that we've uh, done. We've always, we own our own copyright. Um, and we've done that. I mean, I, I've loved that since the... You know, Led Zepp did it way before we did it. You know, loads of people was on it before we did. Queen did it before we did it. Owning your own copyright—that's something that—that's um, something that can get very uh, acrimonious later on in life. Um, so we learned that very early on, and that was also to do with the fact that Tony, you know, the factory thing that um, you know, factory didn't own copyright. To Yes. So did that mean that you managed to, one of the few bands who managed to sort of navigate the... Um... There was no contract. Oh, sorry. That you're, you're, the, the line has just slightly broken up there, actually. So I missed that. So do you, that was about, about 30 seconds ago. So does that mean that you managed to navigate the admin of being in the band much better than 90% of the other bands that have been around? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're on your own copyright, it's 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 not hard. It's also it's not easy. But when you own your own thing, I you've recorded it. You physically own it because you've recorded it. Yeah. Obviously, it's got to be mastered. It's got to have a sleeve. It's got to have those things and, and whatever. Um, we've always been very um, protective as far as that's concerned. You know, there's only a couple of things that we we don't kind of own. Right. Um, you know, we really, you know, there. Oh no, it slightly broke up again. Actually, sorry about that. No, you were just talking about. So yes, I'm... don't worry. I'll go through it again. The um, yeah, the, keep the camaraderie thing and don't and don't have um the me 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 thing. Another brilliant thing about this band, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is say we're in the, when we're in the studio, you'd, people would expect me to look after the drums and the drum sound, yeah? Yeah. I don't. I go down, record it, and I leave that to Martin or Jez, yeah? I Because they're my ears and eyes and ears behind the glass. We, they already know what I want. They already know what's going on. But my job when I'm in that studio is to record and get my performance the best that it can be. Then I'll move behind the glass after the part of the production techniques going on. But, we, but I trust them to have an independent view of what I've just done. And it works the same. Jez doesn't always look after the bass. It might be me looking after the bass and, you know, and it switches around all the time. And then we're looking after the whole cohesive thing. That's another great thing and another um, kind of element that this band has that not a lot of other bands have. Oh, you just... Sound, yeah? Yes. Um, and, but when you trust the people that you're with and you know that if it's being cut, if it's being taken down lower, if it's being changed, you know, in some way, shape or form, it's being changed the right reason not because they don't like it or they don't think it should be there that that's a very hard thing to be able to um 
to come together within bands. But we're lucky because we can kind of navigate over that. Don't get me wrong. We have our moments <laughs> from, from there, you know. And the weird thing is we'll be we'll be having a, a debate about a sound that's nothing to do with any of our sounds. It's another sound, you know, that's created somewhere. And we're having this come, oh, well, that should be not there and this should be that and it should be on the left, it should be on the right in the background or whatever. But it's a very constructive conversation about sound, not about someone's individual bit. Get what I mean? Yes. Well, that's. I mean, it's. It sounds like you've got one of the best kind of music dynamics that that's probably ever been around, actually. Well, and I think that's what's he- helped it to maintain from from this period. You know, um, I I cannot be in the studio. I trust Martin and Jess to be getting on with doing what they need to be done, and I could be doing an interview like this while they're in the studio. But I'm not worrying. God, are they going to? They're going to cut that. They're going to take this. They're going to move that. They're going to do this with a hi hat. But don't do that. I'll, I might get in. Here's something that's completely different from my perspective of it. But I'll go away and go, right, well, they've done it for a reason. So let me listen. Let's see if I can get it. You know, some things, even if I still don't like it, I still like the fact that they had enough chutzpah to try something different with it than leave it just the same. Yeah? And then there's, there's sometimes you've got to admit to yourself that, you know, that I might not be on board right at that moment. And it might be two months down the line where I go, yeah, get it now. Do do, do you know what I mean? But if I had thrown a complete wobbler, got rid of it, erased it off the tape, two months later, it isn't there. And the the, the performance isn't there. And that then, I think, helps towards being um, more divisive. You know what I mean? Because now two other people still wanted it and you didn't want it because it's there and now you've just woken up when they were wide awake two months back do you know what I mean yeah. you've got to give things time to percolate um, famous for me for me was um, Won't Stop Loving You in the Big E because I was being Mr. Complicated Drum Boy and listening to all kind of you know mad uh, 32 things and you know crazy drum things that was not one of my favourite songs when that came around, but I did not in any way, shape or form stop it from building, stop it from happening, stop it from, you know, being what it is. Ask me what my favourite song in the whole world is now, that particular tune. <laughs> yeah, but it just goes to show the guys knew it there and then, but it's a perfect example of me not being on board because I was on into something else completely different, you know. Well, it's interesting because I always remember, I think it was um, Stephen Morris from the from Joy Division at the time, saying that when he or they heard, you know, the, the recording that Martin had done for them, they weren't really that excited about the sound, you know. So obviously he'd heard something and knew what what, what could be done with it, whereas the band thinking, mm, not sure if we like that, but you, they had to trust what Martin was doing. So then it became this kind of such an iconic sound and kind of has gone down in history, hasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. You know, 40 years later, look, look where it is. It's a standout out thing. You can't ask young men who are not moving and swimming in that direction to go in the same direction as you. It's like, you know, it's like you've been in a cab. You all want to go at the same place, but someone wants to go in a different direction to get there. And you go, no, no, this main road is, is where it takes us. And you're going, no, we need to do a left, a right, a reverse, a turn around and do whatever. And we'll get there. We're going, yeah, you'll get there, but that's going to take you a lot longer to get there. That's the whole point of trusting a producer, trusting someone who you, you're working with. And I think building the relationships that we've got now, we kind of trust each other around those things. You know what I mean? And it's not, um, it's, it's a wonderful way to be able to walk in, into a studio and know that you're going to create something really good between all of you for the, all the right reasons and not this is my song i want it done this way yes and that and that you know because obviously you've worked with so many people you know is there any particular time or, or sort of moment where you look back and think god that was quite extraordinary and quite amazing for me it was um that my whole period of working with bernard sumner that was uh, I mean, I still see Barney around now and everything, but that pioneering, those pioneering days where we just wanted to be in the studio, just wanted to produce the artists, just wanted to make songs, just wanted to learn about the studio, just wanted to 
get our heads around, um, you know, production techniques and all that kind of thing and, and what makes it kind of tick. That for me was um, uh, some very big moments. And the fact that he's still my friend and, you know, he's still, he's, he's still in and around and he's still, he's still creating great music. I mean, I, I sometimes, honestly, I really have to pinch myself when I listen to, um, you know, uh, uh, one, of, one of their famous tracks. And I have to remember that that's Barney, my mate. <laughs> not, not, not Bernard Sumner, as everyone else is saying. That, that, that's Barney, my mate, singing there. Yeah, true faith. That's Bernard. That's that's him, isn't it? You know, and it, it still kind of rocks me in different worlds. The same with Steve. You know, I'm a big Steve. Uh, I'm a big Steve fan. I've always loved uh, how Steve plays and Steve's energy on drums and all that kind of thing. You know, and um, yeah, when when you know when you know these people and then you go and see them performing and doing something that's you know, super iconic. And then you just remember, those are the guys you used to share a rehearsal room with. Those are the guys you used to just hang out at gigs with and stuff, you know. Yes. And also, just lastly, I know um, last year, I think it, it was, when Cherry Red brought out that sort of compilation, a Manchester compilation of seven... I think it had seven discs and about 145 tracks. And, you thought, and I thought, you know, thinking... That's just an incredible wealth of music coming out of one area, obviously a big place. But do you often sort of look back and think, crikey, Manchester did produce an awful lot of stuff? And same with Liverpool. It, it did, and it still is. You know, there's, it still is all the time. And I, it, that's the thing that I kind of, you know, love about it all the time. There's always something else going on that will get your your attention somewhere, you know, whether it's um, a great all group, a great all girl group like Lines, you know, or uh, a brand new band you've, you've probably not come across yet, but you, you will do soon call a uh, band called Narcissus, who, um, you know, they're big uh, Joy Division ACR fans, but they've got their own vibe and their own feel. And, and you know, uh, they're like the next generation of, of, of new good bands to come along you know we've we've got uh, the pop side of the the blossoms and things like that you know which uh uh still good i mean it's just still you know i'll give you for instance of how things like the blossoms can change your your, your attitude to do things i went to a sound check of the blossoms when they were playing um in uh taffy cricket ground and i got there they were playing with the charlatans it was a Big night with Charlton's then, and I think it was the Cortinas. I think it was a big, big night. Um, and the Blossoms arrived. They set up all the gear. They just, um, you know, these remember these are all really young guys. Everybody, the crew's dead young. All of that. I don't think there's a beard between all of them. You know that kind of thing. And they go and I watch these sub twenty-five year olds be totally professional absolutely on it professional no you know they, they didn't they just went there and just nailed it did the sound set they didn't even ask for levels to be turned up down or whatever they just played knew what they were doing and everything and i thought i need to be a bit more like those guys <laughs> you know what i mean i need to be a bit more like those guys because they have got it together you know what i mean now that's just watching the next wave of doing things when you think you're doing something all right. You watch them and you go, yeah, I love their professionalism. I think I'm professional, but I need to step up to that level. Yes. And obviously this month and, and for the next few months, you'll be touring live. Is that something that's um, both exciting and slightly nerve-wracking? Yes, both of those. One, because I'm not a great fan of, of the, the getting there. I like the being there. So, um, But then I'll give all that up to be on the stage with those guys you know i love i love playing music with those guys so um yeah we're doing um really large tour i think this is the biggest one we've ever done 21 dates in total over the throughout the uk and ireland yes and I'm... yeah we still like we wouldn't do it if we didn't still like it believe me yes and obviously these moments are great because not only are you going to have people who knew you from back then, but you're going to pick up a new audience, which must mean you feel like, you know, the, the sort of the band is going to continue on past, you know, for the next the, decade or so. 
Well, that is one of the freakiest things about being around for a long time. When you see these new faces and you go, you're an embryo. How do you know what we do? <laughs> into anything that we're, we're into. But there's lots of, um, you know, younger people because they're finding things for the first time. They're hearing about it. You know, they, they, they know the, the Oasis thing. They know the Hacienda thing. They know the Manchester thing. They know the factory thing. And as they're going through the history... At some point, they stumble on oh, certain next show. Yeah, aren't they? Aren't they still around? Aren't they still doing? You know, even if they don't know what our history is, they find them. They find Section Twenty Five. They find Vinnie Riley. You know, um, you know all those kind of things. And that's that's great, actually. That's really good. Uh, being able to make it, you know, continue on and it goes goes to the next day. And like I was telling you about those those bands before, I'm I'm quite good friends with with um, Narcissus. And they, uh, you know, just all their influences would, if I was their age, they'd be all my influences as well, you know, in and around Manchester sort of thing. But it's weird me being one of their influences and I'm their friend. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the Barney thing that I've just said, you know what I mean? I'm like, just, to me, I'm just Donald to them. I'm I'm just Donald to them. But to them, you're Donald from a certain ratio, You, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. No, it must be fantastic. Look, Donald, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been fantastic. And um, and when I put it out, I will tell you and also um, the person who set this up, Caroline, that's her name, isn't yeah. it? But yeah, thank you ever so much for this. This has been fantastic. I'm just so pleased that it's going so well and you've sort of got such a lot of enthusiasm for it all. Well, still there, and thank you. It's, I mean, it's guys like you now that kind of make the next phase of it go on because you know enough about it you you can see where it's kind of evolving where where it's got to and that that's a great thing for us as well that there's loads of guys like you that still know what it's kind of about and still want to talk about it with with reverence and going you know and still getting a, a magnifying glass and going look guys you need to these guys are still doing it it's still a quality item yes so you, you guys didn't say it. we say it all the time on on twitter and what <laughs> No, it's fantastic. It would be out there, do you know what I mean? So thank you as well. Yeah, well, look, I hope it goes really well. I know everyone always says the eight hours of sort of getting there is bad, but when you're on the stage for two hours, it's often worth it. That's yeah, that's the one. We work all day, or and a half, all day. <laughs> I know, but it'll be worth it. It'll be great. Anyway, look, have a lovely evening and best thank luck you. as well, okay? Thank you very much, David. Take care there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.